Welcome to another episode of Anthropod. I'm Jonah Rubin. And I'm Rupa Pillai. Today we're going to be hearing an interview that Jonah did with Charlene Makeley about her article published in the August 2015 issue of Cultural Anthropology, The Socio-Political Lives of Dead Bodies, Tibetan Self-Immolation Protest as Mass Media. The article looks at a wave of Tibetan monks who set themselves on fire as part of a protest wave in 2009. Jonah, what caught your eye about the article? Well, Professor Makeley tells the story of this movement through the figure of Punzhak, a 22-year-old monk who was recorded setting himself on fire, apparently in protest of Chinese policies towards Tibet. And this self-immolation becomes the focal point for various stakeholders to struggle over what precisely this act was meant to convey. I was really drawn to the ways that Makeley approaches these self-immolations by fire as contested acts of mass media in order to think about the social and political lives of the dead. Sounds fascinating. Let's take a listen. Charlene Mackley, welcome to Anthropod. For starters, can you tell us a little about Puntzhak, the monk whose self-immolation lies at the heart of your article? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Great way to start because he really is the center of this. Um, but as I say in the article, it's very hard to know much of certain about Puntzhak given the media blackout. Right, and even his age is contested <laughs> in all of the sources. Though the consensus is he's very young. Um, people report anywhere from 16 to 24 years old. But we can piece together that he was a person who was ensconced in social and kin relations throughout the process of his protest and beyond. He had an uncle who was a monk at Kirti, um, that monastery I talk about, who was accused of hiding his body and later um, ended up in prison for that. His cousin. Uh, young cousin self-immolated with another young monk just months later and then he himself planned his protest as a duo right uh, with a friend and um, so he was ensconced in strong loyal relationships or friendships with monk peers at Kirti Monastery um, who then relayed his image and voiced him through um, quoted words and everything and those monk friends, um, several of them ended up in prison. They're serving like 10 to 13 years uh, for their role in the protest. And then, of course, um, his grieving father was made to appear in the CCTV documentary film I talk about. So that's that's all we can piece together from afar about Punsok. But the other thing about him is that, as I say, he did not intextualize his protest, right? Um, we don't have any written messages from him um, from the time of the protest or any last words. Instead, he was communicating visually through these mailed photos and the performance itself. So that makes really understanding him or engaging him from afar even more fraught. I, I talked about this paper with an anthropology class at Lewis and Clark College, and we were really confronting the challenge um, in our discussion of the performative approach to the subject of the person that I argue for in this article, right? Um, when we seem to be addressed as witnesses and as third-party mediums of protest, 
right? So thinking about the speaking subject as this kind of partial and contested and emergent person can really threaten to dissolve the, the coherent liberal subject that a dialogue between protesters and their publics aspires to. And that the really extreme case of this is the CCTV state media documentary, right? They, in that documentary, they erase Punsok as an intention subject altogether. So, you know, in our discussion with the students, we, I, I argued, though, that if we don't grapple with the nature of the subject and we think about um, the really specific nature and causes of these, what I'm calling necropolitics, right, the politics of death, then we really can't get at what's really going on here. Um, and we can't just turn to rediscovering the sovereign liberal subject via death, right? So if it's voluntary death, then somehow in the liberal subject emerges as a hero because you somehow escaped all other um, control. But in practice, in these contexts, um, in reality, it's a much more conflictual and confusing and contested process of finding and interacting with the deceased subject. So that's what I'm trying to say in the article. Let's unpack for just a moment what it is specifically that was so disturbing to your students when you talk to them about this case. What is it exactly that you mean when you talk about the liberal subject and how does the act of self-immolation and particularly self-immolation in which um, no sort of death note or, or, um, or video recording explaining the act um, challenges that idea of the liberal subject? Yeah, you know, these students were so amazing. Um, they, One of them, they had done some reading before. It was a, a course on um, the anthropology of suffering and violence. And one of the students said that nowadays with the so-called humanitarian turn, so we see this all over the place where we're addressed as sort of supposed to be sympathetic viewers and witnesses of um, others suffering, that the body itself is supposed to come across as the, the very end point of truth. That's the place where we go to figure out what's really going on in the world. If we just look at others' bodies, we have to honor the truth of what's happening to them. And then when someone chooses to die in protest in this way, we are left as witnesses to, you know, how do we, how do we honor that, I guess, that, that um, sacrifice in a way, but still talk about how complex the politics is around interpreting that thing. So when, when they read my piece... I think many of the students wanted or, or felt that I was somehow um, taking away from Punsuk's protest or somehow denying that he had intentions to communicate, which is not at all what I had in mind and what I tried to explain to them. But the liberal subject is is what I think there is where they're coming from in that we we're raised in the West and at any rate to think of ourselves as core selves that somehow inhabit a space inside our bodies and minds and we speak from that core space of authenticity and all meaning derives from that space but the real challenge i guess even the horror you could say of a performative approach to the subject and to meaning in general is that that core in practice doesn't exist right i I suppose there are links here to buddhist philosophy and the notion of selflessness and, and emptiness that Buddhists talk about, right? But it's very, very threatening, and especially to Westerners where we live in this 
cult of the individual, um, to think that maybe that coherence that we want to attribute to the self is in fact a post hoc politics or a post hoc, a constantly evolving or emerging process, which means we are all constantly open to the other. Right? We're all constantly vulnerable to how others might take us up and recognize us and interpret us in ways we don't always control. So I guess that's, that's, that's part of the challenge, right? And, and then when you take it to these extreme events where in some ways the liberal subject is being performed, as I argue in my paper, then you know, how do we both talk about that complexity and honor the sacrifice? Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to start working on the topic of Tibetan self-immolation? Yeah, well, you might imagine, given my arguments in the article, that I came to write and speak about this topic very, very reluctantly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, lots of grappling with um, the, the ethical dilemmas. Um, in Tibetan studies circles, colleagues who work in central Tibet and Lhasa City, that's up on the high plateau um, They've been more accustomed since the 1980s to dealing with uh, overt state repression there. Those of us who work outside of central Tibet, right, in other Tibetan regions, not the Tibetan Autonomous Region or the TAR, where open protest did not occur in widespread ways until 2008, we researchers could be somewhat complacent about our roles as researchers and our access to people. But now that the center of protests there has in fact shifted to eastern Tibetan regions where I work, right? All of us who work in these regions have to grapple with those same ethical dilemmas. What is our role as foreign researchers in um, contexts of violence and state repression? How do we witness and narrate and analyze violence and untimely death in these places, both safely, right, without getting people in trouble, um, and respectfully? So I grapple with this a lot through my experience in 2008 and beyond. Um, and I, when I, when the spate of immolations began, I didn't want to just claim a simple kind of pundit role in mainstream media, which is all the rage now. You, you rush to be a pundit. Um, or I didn't want to be seen to be exploiting this really tragic situation as a career move. And that's a really tough thing for an academic. You're called to speak. In some ways, you have the resources to speak. So the way I thought about it, though, after a while was that I happened to be living in that Tibetan town during the 2008 military crackdown. I was one of the few foreigners actually in a position to experience it unfolding. Most foreigners were um, deported or asked to leave. Um, so I felt I, I actually could contribute an important and maybe more ethnographically grounded perspective on this phenomenon. So the upshot is that, you know, out of, from my perspective, that you can grasp that this spate of immolations does not come out of nowhere, right? It's in a way really a logical outcome of an escalating state of siege and historically specific Sino-Tibetan tensions. So I hope that's what I can contribute even as I continue to struggle with it. Let's talk a little bit more about that um, historical context of the self-immolations. Um, I imagine that most people, given the kind of high-profile free Tibet movements in the West, will have a vague understanding of um, Tibetan self-immolation as a response to Chinese state repression of Tibetan Buddhists. Right. But you, in fact, want to situate this latest wave of self-immolations in a slightly longer historical context with, with key events in the lead-up towards the uh, self-immolations you analyze in the article. Right, right. I would point out first that, you know, the protests were 
they were not just a response to repression of Tibetans as Buddhists, um, though, you know, like all uh, most other Tibetan protests since the 1980s, these these immolations were initiated, and then, um, like Punsok, monks were the vanguard of these protests. But then later, the, after Punsok, the majority of the immolations have actually been lay Tibetans. So, so the spate of new protests is not just about Buddhism, but I do argue in my forthcoming book that they are responses to much larger processes that were set in motion actually decades ago and that are playing out differently in different regions. So what people may not know about is that especially since 2000 and the so-called Great Open the West development push in the PRC, um, there's been ongoing and officially repressed disenfranchisement of Tibetan communities in general. And, and many of this ha- much of this happening through land appropriation and resource extraction, all of that happening amidst a top-down urbanization push. So you have state officials now seeking to finally integrate the Tibetan highlands out west into Chinese and global markets. And when protests happen, um, you get this vicious spiral of intensifying state security in the wake of the protests. And so that was what was especially happening in Ngawa Prefecture um, at the time of Punsok's um, protest in 2011. So what we have here really is an escalating um, what I call necropolitics that's driven by state-led capitalist development and market integration. I talk about two main moments in the article in this 21st century politics. One is the 2008 protests and military crackdown, which is really the most immediate context for this spate of immolations. There were over 150 separate demonstrations during the Olympic year out west in China. Um, This was the most wide scale we've seen among Tibetans. And many of those sites of protests then became sites of immolation protests three and four years later. And then the other moment I talk about in the article is 2010, two years later, right? The Ushu or Jekundo earthquake. Among Tibetans, I say, so-called natural disasters are seen to be indications of the widest scale communal misfortunes and they dredge up violent histories and memories for Tibetans. Scholars talk about um, how Tibetan pop songs and poems since the 2008 uprisings um, have been full of tropes of natural disaster and moral decline. And all of that's unfolding in the context of ongoing state repression and increasing protests across these regions. Um, so, so in 2010, when that earthquake happened, it was just so devastating for Tibetans there. It was the largely Tibetan region. So what I'm saying in pointing out these two moments um, before the immolation started is that in the escalating Sino-Tibetan conflict, when so much suffering and loss remains under state repression. You just are not allowed to talk about this stuff publicly. The return of the untimely dead is always imminent. You, you can't stop them from returning. You can't stop people from remembering and mourning, right? So that's always at the back of what's going on now in these regions. You're listening to Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. For more podcasts, as well as photo essays, teaching tools, and journal articles, check out our website, And specifically when it came to the 2008 crackdown, one of the things I found very interesting is usually when we talk about necropolitics, we're talking about a physical or a biological death, the killing of, of living individuals. But you analyze the 2008 crackdown as a form of social death as well. Mm -hmm. Um, What's it mean to extend the concept of necropolitics to be talking about social death? 
Right. Yeah, I think this notion of social death could be applied to many other places besides Tibetans. Um, people tend to use, in their experience of um, death, they use biological tropes to scale up from interpersonal relationships, kinship relationships, and um, deaths to larger communities or communal experiences. And so what's specific to Tibet in this process um, that we'd have to really pay attention to is tantric Buddhism, the kind of Buddhism that was brought to Tibet from India or Vajrayana um, is what is so central to many communities' experiences of death and transmigration in a way. Um, but, but the idea is that you as a community um, are linked to divine protectors. Um, you have to recruit them to help you purify your community's environments of demonic forces to stave off the loss of fortune, which brings about the dissolutions of communities. So that, in a way, is talked about with all kinds of tropes of death and, as I said, natural disasters to, to mean the death of, the, of a village or a society or a community. And so in that, you have the key role of monks and lamas as um, death specialists, right? They're the ones who can intervene in that um, relationship with deities to help recruit them to purify and tame demonic forces. So you actually can't get at the stakes of things like self-immolation if you only treat it as a string of individuals dying. Well, let's talk about those stakes a little bit more. You know, conventionally, we tend to think of death as an end, um, you know, a final cessation of our ability to act and to speak in the world. But in your article, you argue that Punsak and other monks like him who self-immolate, in fact, continue to speak even after their death. So mm -hmm. how do they manage to do that? How do they manage to communicate even after their deaths? Right. Yeah, that's exactly what I meant by uh, following Catherine Verdery, the sociopolitical lives of dead bodies. But if you recall from the article, um, I'm saying that um, the dead don't just speak, right? The, the point of the article is to push us to think about how speech and nonverbal signs are aligned or not in interpretive practices. So let me just explain what I mean by that. You know, so for example, we could say that Punsok speaks, as someone like um, Mikhail Bakhtin would say, as he is voiced, both verbally and textually in written documents and posters, right, by living interlocutors. So we saw in the in the article how he was quoted retroactively in interviews and news reports as speaking before and during his protest, right? Um, he's framed on posters, uh, the, the claim in the poster that he was a hero for Tibetan independence is perhaps one of the more controversial claims about his motives. But those words and texts continue to claim living motives for him and, and claim Punsok himself as this ongoing self-determined persona. But then we'd have to expand it even further to think about how Punsok also lives after death to be sensed as an embodied person through photos, right? Um, he was communicating visually with us through nonverbal signs. He was framed by flames. He was recirculated in videos. So that's why I suggest we have to attend to the aesthetics of those images, right? In the poster, he leans forward, looking directly into the camera. Um, or in the video, he seems to be devoid of affect in this kind of controlled meditation that, that speaks of Buddhism. But then, you know, if we go even further, and we can't because of the limits of the media here, if ethnography were possible in such context, then they're absolutely not possible 
for anybody, I think. But if it were, we could also better understand how Punsok might speak and be sensed in mourners' interactions with his body um, at his funeral, through dreams or omens associated with his altar and shrines, for example. But more specifically, um, and even more importantly, in the Tibetan Buddhist context, um, through incarnation. Right. So in the Tibetan Buddhist context, if Punsok indeed becomes a bodhisattva through this act, he could choose rebirth as a didactic practice. He could come back to aid sentient beings because he's presumably con- conquered death. Right. And in the Tibetan context, he could very well begin a new incarnate Lama lineage. Right, so he he could be. This could be very interesting to watch over time. Whether he or other of the immolators comes back or takes reincarnation. So the Tibetan Buddhist context really uh, provides us with a very different um, notion of death and what personas after death than we might imagine. And you're, one of the things that you're very attentive to in the article is the way that. Puntak and, and other monks like him are framed by multi, by and for multiple distinct audiences. Yes. With the, with the effect that they end up speaking towards, at the very least, three distinct publics. Um, yeah. The Chinese public within the People's Republic, mm-hmm. um, a foreign public observing from afar, mm-hmm. and a local Tibetan one. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's start with the one that you call the most important of these audiences, the local Tibetan community within the People's Republic of China. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do self-immolations work to make and to define this Tibetan community? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, yeah, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that there, that, at the least, there are three publics because really there are more than just three at issue here. It's a very complex um, interaction or interlocutors. But but the issue of Tibetan community building in and through protest, I think, is really the crux of the matter and something that I actually highlight in my new book. Um, but I should first say that, of course, Tibetans are not at all a monolithic community in the PRC. People may not know that, but there are over 6 million people there, um, very differentiated by region and dialect, some mutually unintelligible dialects, um, relationship to the state, rural-urban, pastoralist-farmer, class distinctions, so very, very heterogeneous. But what is so unique to the 21st century protests, since uh, 08 especially, is that they've been occurring across all these Tibetan regions. And new mass media technology allows for closer sharing of information about them and um, this cat and mouse game with state censors. Um, But I do argue in the article that these post-protest mourning practices really point up the inherently social nature of protesters dying, that, that they really make clear how persons or protesters are ensconced in all kinds of networks and how the deceased can come to actually stand for and constitute those very networks as people are interacting with the dead. And PRC security forces know this, which is why since 2012, where I work, local authorities actually sought to criminalize mass mourning and punish any supporters of the immolator's families. And then you see the serial nature of each immolation. The string of them scales up the relevant mourning community over time as residents begin to see their experiences of repression linked to others. Um, But it is still unclear, because we can't do ethnography on this, um, how much um, rural Tibetans really know about other protests and immolations elsewhere. Um, Though I do know that stories and rumors circulate very, very quickly now 
via cell phones, um, and still via word of mouth. So those are some ways that communities are being um, made and remade through this practice. Like, you know, there's there's specific things like how immolators, um, how they're in their their words and in their last testaments, they, they're increasingly addressing um, and therefore creating that this pan-Tibetan public. Um, they're, in fact, in their last words, anticipating and trying to direct their own mourners, right? So they talk about, they, they address we Tibetans, all Tibetans must, blah, 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 don't mourn in this way, don't be sad, do this. They're, mm. they're really directive in their testaments. And so in some ways, it seems like mourning becomes almost a bridge between the divisions within the the Tibetan communities that you were talking about before. Yes. Uh, as a way of forging some kind of unity around uh, um, a greater Tibetan Buddhist identity. Absolutely. And the, you know, I'm glad you said Buddhism because in the morning, Buddhism, again, and especially monastic Buddhism, comes to the fore in, in new ways, as I talked about, the that new mass cremation um, and a newly prominent role for monks um, as death specialists, the ones who, only ones who can actually cross over and move people on to their next lives to the next births so that's that's really crucial and then you have the 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 spiral process of people's defiant attendance at post-protest mass gatherings and funerals and going to immolators villages and homes to support them even if local security forces are trying to stop that they can't they haven't been able to stop them well let's talk about the response of the chinese state because Mm -hmm. um I mean, you've highlighted the repression of the Chinese state to attempt to stop these mourners, but they also attempt to recontextualize and perhaps even tame the acts of, of self-immolation themselves. Mm-hmm. So how do they go about trying to reshape the meaning of these acts? Yeah. Well, the documentary is a case in point, so I try to talk about that. But there, this is happening on various levels, various different types of media agents have tried different tactics over the past four and a half years or so. Um, the first tactic I talk about in the article because um, it was the earliest and most knee-jerk of tactics of, to recontextualize the meanings. That was the, the old template of blaming the exiled Dalai Lama clique for masterminding all protests in the PRC among Tibetans, right? And that's all sort of grouped under the rubric of separatism, Right, so that the Dalai Lama and his clique are trying to get Tibetans to separate from the PRC. So that's an old template. But the necropolitics of protest by dying, which is new, I think allowed for Chinese state media to appropriate global humanitarian discourses that then linked them to anti-terrorist efforts abroad. So that a new tactic was blaming exiles for the manipulation of young people to the death, right? So in the way that um, Westerners talked about the Taliban and suicide and young suicide bombers, right? So that was one tactic that they tried, and that was that was um, very prominent in the documentary I talk about. And then they they you know switched tactics or they added tactics to trying to individualize or pathologize immolators as unstable or mentally ill or depressed or just as responding to small scale domestic conflicts in the home, these kinds of things. But all of those tactics to recontextualize, I would say, have been ineffectual. So the main way that security forces um, have tried to control all of this was to demand control of the body of the immolators, right? And thereby to control communal mourning by refusing access to the corpse. So there were, in many cases, hidden state cremations of the remains 
And so the bodies were never given back to families and communities, and they just got an urn, say, and they have no idea whether it's their relative or not. And then in the end, they still haven't been able to control it. And um, so what, what they've come to now is, as I said, criminalizing the mourning practices themselves. And that's where we are now at this kind of impasse of threats. You're listening to Charlene Makeley on Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. And one of the ways that you highlight that Tibetans are trying to resist this um, heavy hand of the state is by gathering together this foreign audience. Yeah. Um, so first off, just the logistics of it. How is it that Tibetan dissidents get this footage past Chinese censors and out of the country? Yeah. So, so since... Um the 1950s, when the Dalai Lama um, left uh, central Tibet and with many, many lay Tibetans, um, there have been networks and practices in place for getting information to foreigners, and especially through travelers to Nepal and India. But since the 2000s, there's been fragmented information from Tibetans within the PRC who are taking great risks to use cell phones to call out, uh, to send emails, to send images and videos. And they're often sending these to um, the Voice of America, VOA offices, or to the Radio Free Asia uh, offices in India and the U.S. But, you know, interpreting what messages they want to send, <laughs> what they're saying when they send these things is the crux of the dilemmas we face as foreigners trying to observe all this from afar, right? Um Tibetans in the PRC, I think, want people to know about all kinds of things that Chinese state media do not depict or try to uh, cover up, like ongoing protests, the suppression of Buddhism, unfair distribution, unfair land appropriation, resource extraction, environmental damage, all that stuff that's going on right now. Um, but the crux of the debates about what they mean or want circle around whether or not all this means that Tibetans in the PRC want independence, and that continues to be an unresolved issue. Um, it's not clear that all Tibetans in the PRC want that. Many do, and maybe many more now. I'm not sure, because we can't really do any on-the-ground ethnography of this. But but it's a hotly debated item outside of the PRC. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that uptake of the video. Um, I think any of us who are connected to the internet, who have Facebook or Twitter, are mm -hmm. familiar with the kind of genre of humanitarian short films. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, either we take up the, the film and it shocks us, maybe we sign a change.org petition, or we ignore the film and, you know, upset whoever had posted that thing by, by doing so. But in fact, you want to complicate this notion of viewing and raise some really challenging ethical questions about the politics of witnessing. Yeah. Um, so what sorts of self-critical reflections should we be having when we're confronted with the sorts of images and videos that you're talking about in the article? Yeah, yeah. This is such a great question. It really drives my thinking here. Um, and as I said, the grappling I did about writing this article. Um, and questioning my own roles as an ethnographer, right? And in the case of the Tibetan immolations, I've all along, you know, since they started, um, especially since 2009 on, I've been very uncomfortable with how foreign and exile media and pundits have been circulating graphic images of immolators' burned bodies online. 
I've really struggled with what that means to look at those kinds of images. I, I think we have to ask ourselves, how do we respectfully witness and understand others' death and suffering without presuming or claiming the false closeness of easy empathy or without, whether consciously or not, exploiting others' suffering for our own gain? And that's that's a tough thing now because it's so easy to fall into. It's all there for us, as you said, online. So the first thing I do for myself when I encounter these kinds of images and stories is to really just sort of catch myself up. I I give myself time to process quietly rather than respond to first impressions. Um, I think inserting a space of reflection, however momentary, is really crucial in this era of um, what I see as escalating shock advertising. Now, that kind of shock advertising is everywhere, um, and even in humanitarian causes. And so I I talk about this in the article as, um, what do I call it? I call it the global marketplace for attention, which is ever more competitive. And so what you get is a kind of um, what I call victim porn, right? Um, We're we're supposed to be drawn into the spectacle of victimhood and then be addressed as a certain kind of witness therein. So so when I go to comment on these kinds of events and images, I always ask myself first, how how am I framing and recirculating these images and for what purposes, right? Am, Am I reproducing an exploitative or spectacularizing or pornographic gaze to draw eyes and audiences to my own projects? Right, so I have to ask, who am I thereby addressing, and why? Right. Um, so when I talk about this with students, we we try to think about what what constitutes formally, right, um, a pornographic image. What? How is an image arranged in this spectacularistic way to address us as voyeurs? And then how do we then get caught up in and manipulated by that? So you know, for example, I thought long and hard about including the image of Punsuk laid out on the street that's in the article. He's he's really bereft there. He's this isolated and very alone persona. Um, and I really wasn't sure I wanted to include it. Um, but after consulting with a variety of people, I finally decided I needed to illustrate the process of reframing and recirculating um, emulators' bodies. And I did that by not editing out the YouTube frame for the, fi- the, the image and the CCTV or China Central Television logos on the image that brand him as a news object or as a humanitarian victim and a state citizen. So in a way, you try to, you, you can actually use formal methods to try to push back against the immediacy of the image and say, see, these images are constructed. They're trying to frame it in a particular way. They're trying to address us in a particular way. So that's how I try to grapple with it myself, although it's not resolved at all. This is really helpful for me, especially because... One of the things that was very powerful, one of the really powerful analytic es- moves in your essay for me, was that you don't take the videotaping of self-immolation as um, a simple mass mediation of a pre-given object in the way that we might think of video videotaping yeah. a, a thing that, that exists in the world, but instead you want to see the body itself as a form of, of mass media. So what's at stake for you in treating the body itself as a form of mass mediation rather than as a separate object, which we later mass mediate through videos and through reporting on on this self-immolation? 
Yeah, also great question. Well, part of that is to push back against our notion of media, which comes out of the 20th century, um, as just electronic media. So that's what often the popular usage of that term is. So my insistence that we think about the body itself as media, and in this case, mass media, comes out um, not always just from my my um, engagement with media studies, but it comes out of my training in linguistic anthropology, um, in that we are trained to think seriously about how people sense and frame all objects they encounter as types or as assemblages of signs, right? So signs really, you could just think about them as mediums of meaning for people, uh, right? And they're always unfolding for us in particular interpretive contexts. So from that angle, bodies or corpses are no exception. So you could consider how in these um, events, bodies can operate as moving frames, like walls or buildings even, for messages to others via dress and gesture and hairstyle and facial expression and, and implements uh, like flames. Then what's so relevant here to think about bodies in this light is that under severe state repression, when most access to mainstream electronic and print media is cut off, bodies in dialogue with camera lenses become key framing devices for urgent messages or petitions even. So I was thinking like, you know, what are flames in that context, but, but eye-catching deadly neon in a way. Um, and I was um, kind of vindicated in this way of thinking by um, the famous Tibetan poem that I mentioned in the article, the blogger Sangdur, his poem called Morning. In another stanza of that poem, he addresses the immolators directly and he says, your red-hot bare bones have become your dying hope. Another way to put that would be, your burning bodies are now your urgent petitions. This is why I think we need to pay attention to the specificities of, of what, but also how flaming and burned bodies and their actions signify things to witnesses. So I hope that gets at why I think we have to be more um, nuanced in our understanding of what a medium is, right? It's not just electronic, right? It's, it's anything. <laughs> right. And that actually um, helps lead into the, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is, you know, one of the powerful things about anthropology as a discipline is our ability to go into a um, very local place and, and tell people what's different about that place from um, phenomena of the world in general, but also then to use insights from that place to speak back towards other instances around the world and reveal things that we may not have seen um, at first glance. Yeah. And in recent years, we've seen self-immolation uh, emerge as a protest genre around the world. Um, mm -hmm. We can think of Mohamed Bouazizi, the Tunisian street vendor whose death in 2011 sparked the Arab Spring, yeah. um, to 2013 protests in Bulgaria over utility monopolization and rate hikes. Um, and even in the United States in 2014 to self-burnings in Texas to protest racism in the U.S. medical system. Yep. Um, right. Yet the most famous cases of self-immolation remain that of Tibetan monks. So I wanted to ask if you had any speculations as to why the Tibetan case has captured international attention in the way it has, and more importantly, how, how your insights into, into Tibetan self-immolations can raise issues that we should be thinking about when we hear, or, or perhaps more relevantly, when we see other cases of self-immolation um, in the news. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so many issues here. Um, and I've learned a lot in trying and engaging this myself, right, to think about. Um, and I had not even realized how widespread self-immolation by fire is. I would remind um, listeners quickly that the majority of Tibetan immolators have been lay people, not monks. And this 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 spate of 142 immolations by fire uh, among Tibetans is now the largest or longest in known history. So there's something there. There's something different um, going on. But I would also remind folks um, that immolation in English is a much larger concept. Um, the term in English means really any kind of sacrifice of a living being. And I, I take it that way, right? So my article then would push us to ask in all of these um, different contexts around the world, why immolation by fire has escalated in frequency, right, and spread across regions in the past decades, and why that form of self-sacrifice gets so much media attention. And I would contrast that with many other forms of immolation protests, right, sacrificing yourself in death um, among Tibetans and others that are um, downplayed or not paid attention to in the media, or even sadly, um, in some cases in the Tibetan context, evaluated as lesser forms of protest, like less heroic somehow. Um, so like among Tibetans, people don't know this, but there have been self-stabbings. There have been people jumping off of bridges or buildings. There have been hangings. There have been drownings, people jumping into rivers, right? So there's all kinds of ways in which people are um, sacrificing their lives to say things in protest. Um, so that in turn, and we think about what's happening around the world would, would speak to my point in the article about attending to the specificities of the relevant performance genre for immolators and their publics, right? And in that way, you can begin to discern both interregional links among these various types of events and their key differences, right? So we could distinguish Tibetan self-immolation by fire from that of others, for example. Um, so as I say, we have to think then a key link among all these events, the ones you mentioned anyway, um, are the choice of flames as the key modality of immolation, right? But what flames mean and do in these different contexts can vary. So so what I refer to in the, the article as the intersubjective aesthetics of pain and suffering through these kinds of protests, we could say is generalizable. That's happening everywhere. But what is highly specific is the subjectivity part. That is, you'd have to ask who burns, who dies, who lives, and for whom, right? And that's what, in practice, can be highly changeable, highly contested. And so I find that I can't just casually call all of these acts forms of suicide in English or, or lump them under a rubric of suicide protest because it's not getting at um, the complexity of what's going on there or even what's specific about what links them. So then another way that my article would push us to think about these events would be to contextualize them historically and culturally, right? If we did that, we could begin to link them by considering how many of them are addressing or trying to address wider publics as end runs around central state leaderships, right? So they are, we could see them as embodied petitions made spectacle, and they in the process bring to the fore particular histories of necropolitics that are specific to national scenes. So one thing that links all of them, uh, many of them, um, is that they're often interpreted within, and they even help to constitute specific national scales of action and personhood, 
right? What is what is um, Bulgaria? What is um, India? What is Russia? So another key link among all of these events that we could take from this article is that they're all mass media phenomena. That is national, as many theorists have said, right? National and transnational scales of community and citizenship have all along been constituted through the rise of technologies and infrastructure for mass mediated spectacles of violence and protest in post-colonial theaters. So think about, if you look at um, all of these um, uh, self-immolation by fire events um, over time, you have particular clusters um, like the 1960s Vietnam War, right, uh, or the late 1990s um, rise of the internet, where all of a sudden you get um, now a proliferation of these events. Another key link among them um, could be then claims to absolute sincerity, right, that the act by a flame supposedly seals the intention of the protester, right, as itself a response to perceptions of intensifying corruption, inauthenticity, and the low-stakes performative facades that people see in pop media, right? So what's linking all of these things, too, is transnational media capitalisms. So those are some ways that I could spin out some ways that um, my article might help us think about these other events. But key differences that come across, right, that might help explain the relative prominence of Tibetans and Tibetan self-immolation. And I would say, actually, that in fact, I don't think these events have been that widely covered in global media. What's sad about them is that they're not actually taken up that broadly. Um, even the Tibetan case has not been that widely and um, reported on in a sustained way. But there are differences in um, how people, you know, foreigners, observers perceive the relevant publics for these protests, right? So Tibetans, for example, versus others have built a transnational public since the 1980s, especially through um, especially the Dalai Lama and the exiled community. And those transnational publics were already in place. And um, the larger the public that seemed to be relevant, I think, the wider scale spates of immolation are, are elicited. And then 2008 in the Olympics in the PRC especially set those scales of publics in motion again. And that elicited broader and broader participation in protests among Tibetans. So this may be the largest spate of immolations that we've ever seen, and especially immolations by fire. The other key difference um, that perhaps explains some of the relative prominence of the Tibetan case is the now global role of Buddhist subjects and protest as a moral vanguard and model for particular claims to nonviolent resistance, right? So you could see some of the ongoing um, spread of self-immolation by fire as a case in point from my article about the spiral or mimetic nature of the immolation spectacle. So the Vietnamese monk Thich Quang Duc in 1963 was so famous in part because that photo became so famous and people's assumptions about Buddhism and what that meant to to um, create a nonviolent protest. Um, he's That particular protest has been very influential in, in inspiring others, even in the US. And then I guess I would just end with the most recent, um, which people should look into the um, the white Methodist minister, Charlie Moore, that you mentioned in Texas 
um, just last year in June 2014, who self-immolated by fire in a parking lot. Um, I don't know if you re- knew this, but he said in his one of his last testaments, he left behind a note um, and papers. He said he was influenced by the example of Tibetans to mm. do it. But consider how different the situation is for Charlie Moore in that parking lot in Texas than it is for Tibetans um, in terms of you know what performative genres we have available to us to understand what Charlie Moore did um, and how easily he can be dismissed as unstable and mentally ill or right versus um, how Tibetans are taken up as bodhisattvas or can be taken up that way. So you know, I, there's a there's a terrible human pathos and tragedy to this um, that plays out in different ways around the world. Charlie Mackley, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Anthropod. We'd like to thank Charlene Makeley for discussing her article, The Sociopolitical Lives of Dead Bodies, Tibetan Self-Immolation Protests as Mass Media. The article appeared in the August 2015 issue of Cultural Anthropology, and like all the articles published in Cultural Anthropology, it is open access and free to read on our website. On our website, you can also find the show notes for this episode, featuring some of the photos and images discussed by Professor Makeley in this episode, as well as a series of short articles from 2012 written by Professor Makeley and other anthropologists on self-immolation as protest in Tibet. And be sure to keep an eye out for Professor Makeley's forthcoming book, The Politics of Presence, State-Led Development, Personhood, and Power Among Tibetans in China, to be published soon. One last reminder, American Anthropological Association members are currently voting in the spring ballot. We'd like to urge you to join the Society for Culture Anthropology and vote for our new officers. As always, if you'd like to be the first person to know about new podcast episodes and all of the other great content that gets put out on CullAnth.org, then follow us on Twitter where we are at CullAnth and like Cultural Anthropology on Facebook. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time in another exciting look into the world of anthropology.